You've heard of Grammarly, and you might think it's a fancy spell check, but people on your team have been using it and loving it for years because it does way more than you realize. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that works seamlessly across apps and websites and can write an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. When every word your team writes is clear, concise and on brand, companies can save 19 days per employee per year. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. From the heart of where innovation, money, and power collide, in Silicon Valley and beyond, this is Bloomberg Technology with Emily Chang. Chang in San Francisco, and this is Bloomberg Technology coming up in the next hour. For the first time ever, streaming topped cable with U.S. viewers watching more on Netflix, Hulu, and Disney Plus, and more than cable television. We'll dig in to a historic sea change in entertainment and just how far the wave will go. Plus, the venture capitalist who claims Apple is the greatest monopolist today, why he thinks regulators are losing the plot while chasing Meta and Amazon. And it could be the fire festival of travel startups. We'll tell you about Pollen, the luxury trip planner that blew up during COVID. It started with big concerts canceled. Then things quickly spiraled out of control. Meantime, for the first time ever, U.S. viewers are watching more hours on streaming than cable, marking a historic change in entertainment. Subscribers to services like Netflix and Hulu accounted for 34.8% of all TV consumption in July, according to research firm Nielsen. That edged out cable television at 34.4%, broadcast a distant 21.6%. Let's break this all down with Bloomberg's Lucas Shaw and Kevin Tran, media and entertainment analyst for the decision intelligence company Morning Consult. Lucas, I'll start with you. Set the stage here, the big picture. What do these numbers tell us? Well, that, that streaming TV continues to gain share from broadcasting and cable. I mean, Nielsen rolled out this metric, the gauge, a couple of years ago. It was one of the first of these third-party metrics that Netflix actually endorsed. It had been very skeptical of sort of the Nielsen weekly ratings. And there was a period of about a year ago, I want to say, where streaming share seemed to flatline. And you had a lot of traditional media people saying, oh, has streaming hit its peak? Uh, and that clearly hasn't happened. Uh, the one thing I would note is that if you put cable and broadcast together, pay TV still accounts for more TV viewing than streaming. But streaming's gaining share and is, is only going to continue to do so. Kevin, what's your take? Um, you know. Just a couple of months ago, we were talking about Netflix losing subscribers, and here we are with these big numbers. How do you square that? Yeah, I, I think it just speaks to the amazing amount of content that's available across the other services that aren't Netflix, um, Paramount Plus, 
uh, Hulu, Apple TV Plus have all really pushed their original strategy uh, really far ahead, especially after the initial COVID outbreak. And like Lucas just mentioned, um, this streaming gauge that Nielsen has rolled out has been really helpful because the streaming companies themselves don't uh, report a metric uniformly that can be allow others to measure, uh, you know, usage or, or reach among them uh, across each other. So. Uh, it's a big moment uh, for for streaming to overtake traditional. Uh, I would con expect it to continue to happen, maybe not every month, uh, continuously as uh, major sports seasons start like the NBA, but I don't think this will be the first time we see uh, streaming overtake traditional TV. What do you think the difference is, Kevin, between Netflix and Disney Plus? You know, we've been concerned about Netflix losing subscribers, but Disney, according to its latest earnings report, gaining subscribers. Yeah, I think the main difference is uh, Disney's historic vault of IP, which families and uh, really consumers globally can can identify with and, um, you know, really go back to growing up with those types of franchises. And Netflix has been pushing forward with its uh, initiative to build out more franchises for for fr uh, titles like Stranger Things and um, other big uh, originals that it's rolled out. So it, it's trying to push the envelope in terms of franchising titles as well so that streamers or consumers have a better idea of what they're signing up for with the original strategy of Netflix. Um, which I think a lot of people have more of an idea of what Disney Plus will offer with their originals. Now, there was a question when Disney launched Disney Plus about whether it would be too kid-focused. I, I was recently speaking with Ross Gerber, longtime investor in Disney. Take a listen to what he had to say about that. Parents like me absolutely trust Disney content with my kids. And, you know, just recently I took YouTube away from them because YouTube shorts has become the garbage hole of hell. And I don't want my kids watching garbage hole content. And if I put them on Disney plus, there's nothing they can watch that's bad. So I think parents really trust the brand and, and, and that's starting to really pay off for them. Lucas, do you agree with what he said about YouTube? And also can Disney really win over adults? There's no question that, that parents trust Disney. I think that Ross is in the minority in terms of parent behavior. You look at the most popular channels on YouTube in, in any given week, and almost all of them are kids' channels. It's, it's become a default babysitter for, for so many different families um, that there's not really a comparison. The other thing to keep in mind with Disney is Disney didn't grow in the US, so it's not like there are a bunch of parents who are signing up for Disney here. It's really overseas where Disney's been quite strong. Um, and, and that challenge that you outlined at the top is still one for Disney, which is that it's really good with parents, it's really good with fanboys people and fangirls, people who love Star Wars, Marvel, and the like, but it has to try to broaden its appeal to a, a wider group of people. It's something that's, that they're working on. Uh, that's why they've started adding R-rated movies. It's why you're going to see more different types of programming on Disney+, Plus because they need that to keep growing to, to keep Wall Street excited about the company. Meantime, Lucas, Walmart also getting into streaming, teaming up with Paramount. Of course, Amazon has Amazon Prime Video. What exactly are Walmart customers going to get um, from this tie-up, and is it, is it smart? 
Well, if you are a, a customer of Walmart Plus, which is, if we want to you know, make things simple, sort of like Walmart's equivalent of Amazon Prime, you will have access to Paramount Plus, which is Paramount streaming service. Uh, and that's, you know, they're trying to, Walmart experimented with making its own video service, Voodoo. It didn't work very well. They're leaning on a, you know, a trusted and growing brand in Paramount Plus. It has the potential to be mutually beneficial, but it works if, for Paramount, if Walmart signs up a bunch of people for Walmart Plus, uh, and it, it works for Walmart if the Paramount is you know, enticing enough to get pe more people to sign up for its service. It's pretty early. Walmart Plus is very small compared to something like Amazon Prime. Meantime, some big news in sports entertainment. You've got Paramount renewing the rights to the Champion League fo football matches. You've also got Fox, NBC, CBS teaming up for the Big Ten. I wonder, Kevin, is sports really the next and only way for these streamers to get to the next level, a whole new level, not an incremental level? Yeah, I think so. And and not just sports, but, but news as well. So, you know, a lot of these newer streamers uh, with the wave that started in late 2019 launching, um, they came out of the gate strong with originals like uh, the Mandalorian from, from Disney Plus, their morning show from Apple TV Plus. But one of the big things that consumers still can't really do uh, with access to these major services like Netflix, Paramount Plus, and Apple TV Plus is access a significant amount of live broadcast from the major sports leagues like the NFL or um, NBA. So it's not surprising that we're seeing these big packages uh, increasingly being signed uh, you know, by these companies. And I think we're at a point where consumers already have access to so many on-demand scripted and unscripted content uh, choices that right now it's it's really up to the streamers to, to differentiate themselves with live content uh, and, and sports being a major part of that. Yeah, Apple has been dabbling with sports content. Lucas, I mean, where are the battle lines going to be drawn? I mean, which streamers are going to be bidding for what? And is that going to be the next wave of big competition? Well, the most aggressive of the streaming services in sports, if you take ESPN Plus out of the equation, because that's really part of the broader ESPN empire, has been Amazon. Amazon has Thursday Night Football coming up in, in a couple of weeks. They have a lot of rights in Europe. They were a big player for both the, the Big Ten and Champions League and just didn't get it. So they've they've shown the biggest commitment and appetite. Apple has started to, to play around the edges. They have the MLS rights. They're seen as the front runner for NFL Sunday ticket. Netflix hasn't jumped in in a big way yet. They they offered a pretty what sounded like kind of a paltry sum for the Formula One rights. They have been reluctant to to spend big on live sports just yet. You know we'll see what comes with with the next big rights negotiations. You have the NBA, NASCAR coming up in a couple of years. Will if one of those uh, one of those leagues or organizations tries to carve out some rights for streaming, that would be another big package to go. But it's it's worth keeping in mind that say with something like the NFL. Amazon is the only major streaming service that has largely exclusive rights. You know, most of the other games are on broadcast TV. All right, uh, new potential battleground. Bloomberg's Lucas Shaw, Kevin Tran uh, of Morning Consult. Thank you both. Lots to watch. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message, and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise, and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. 
That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Apple has identified its next big business, bringing advertisements to more parts of your iPhone. Today, Apple pushes ads in three places, the App Store, Apple News, and the Stocks app. In the News and Stocks apps, Apple shows display advertisements. That means that third-party companies like car dealerships or mortgage lenders can showcase their advertisements just like they can on a website. On the App Store, the situation is different. There, Apple has search ads. This allows developers to buy their way into showing up higher on search results. For instance, an app store developer can bid for the term car racing or basketball so their apps would surface above competing apps in the list of results. Apple's push into ads is a little ironic given that its ATT or app tracking transparency privacy feature limits the ability for Meta, Snap, and even smaller developers to generate as much revenue as possible from advertising. That's because the feature allows users to choose if they want their data collected and tracked across third-party apps and websites. Still, Apple's hoping to expand its own ads business and is planning to add search ads to its Maps app. Other areas where ads could eventually appear are on Apple Books and Apple Podcasts, along, maybe one day, with an ad-supported tier of Apple TV Plus to compete with new offerings from Netflix and other streaming video providers. I'm Mark Gurman. This is Power On. You can subscribe to Mark's Weekly Power on newsletter at Bloomberg.com. I want to talk more now about Apple and ads with benchmark partner Eric Vishria, who has a few opinions about the iPhone maker's privacy changes. Eric, thank you so much for joining us. You had a tweet that caught our eye this week saying that while regulators chase Amazon and meaningless tiny acquisitions from Facebook, the greatest monopolist today Apple has taken a Trumpian tact, pushing a privacy narrative while stifling competition and favoring their own ads business. Oof. Why do you think Apple is the greatest monopolist today? I, I think that at the end of the day, Apple has tremendous market power. And as, as Mark was saying, with the ATT roll-off that they had, which they've done under the cover of privacy, um, they are they are simultaneously and I think ironically pushing their own ads business. And so while they're crippling other ads businesses, they are growing their own and benefiting and favoring their own. And and look, Facebook, Amazon, they're going to be fine. I'm not really worried about them. But there are thousands of small companies, direct to consumer businesses, 
mom and pop shops that sell products online and targeted via those ad networks, uh, gaming companies that are collateral damage with the ATT rollout. And, and, and so my concern is more for those companies than it is for Facebook and Amazon. Why take the Trumpian tact, the Trumpian um, comparison? I, I think it's the hypocrisy of saying one thing, which is, hey, this is about privacy and privacy to consumers while simultaneously building and growing your own ad network with its own targeting capabilities. Like it's, it's literally in direct conflict with each other. So what do you think the government should be doing instead? I just think the regulators need to, to think about like what is actually impacting consumers and small businesses and it, with that lens, choose their targets. You know, Facebook making a meaningless acquisition in virtual reality is not, that, that doesn't negatively impact consumers. It doesn't hurt the ecosystem. It's totally fine. Um, whereas, you know, this, this type of behavior, it's more complicated. It's, it's more sophisticated, but, but it is actually impacting small businesses and consumers. Still, Meta arguing that their acquisition of this VR company within uh, Unlimited would actually be good for competition. Do you buy that? I, I, I do. I think that if we're in the earliest days of virtual reality in many ways, there are no established metaverse winners or uh, goliaths as it is today. We don't even really know what it is and what form it's going to take over the next five or 10 years. And so you know, small acquisitions with teams and technology where everyone is trying to figure it out still, that's okay. Like, I, I feel like that's that's healthy competition. Maybe it'll turn into something, maybe it won't. Uh, we don't know yet. Whereas I think some of these other markets are much, much more established and, um, and companies have a lot of market power like Apple. We're looking, we're looking at the stock plunges of, of these companies year to day. Uh, Apple seems to be weathering the downturn the best. Definitely. What's your view and benchmarks view of what's happening in the markets right now with, of course, the benefit of, you know, Bill Gurley and the hindsight of, you know, being in the late 90s, you know, one of the top tech analysts on Wall Street? Look, I think that one of the things that Benchmark has done consistently since our founding in the mid-90s is invest consistently. We Most of what we do, 90% of the companies we invest in are 10 people at le or less at the time of investment. And so when you're doing that, you have a very long-term view where you're not going to make money for eight or 10 years if one of those small companies grows into something big. And so over the years, we want to be consistent pre-global financial crisis, post-global financial crisis in the last few years, and even now, actually our investment pace is almost identical. We're making the same number of investments every year. And so I think that consistency is, is, is really huge for the business that we're in. Obviously, the last few years, I, I would say, were characterized by FOMO in the growth markets. There was were, there were so much money sloshing around. There were rounds getting done at insane prices with very little diligence. And so actually, I think this correction broadly is healthy. Um, a lot of speculators will get wiped out. A lot of people who were only here to make a quick buck will get wiped out. And I think you'll be left with uh, a lot of people who have real visions, believers, um, who are willing to put everything into it. And I, th I think that's ultimately healthy. And, and so I'm actually optimistic. Um, you know, every once in a while, a little spring cleaning or 
or cutting is, is, is good. So here we are in the middle of a correction, and you've got a lot of controversy surrounding Andreessen Horowitz writing not just a check to controversial WeWork founder Adam Newman, but its biggest check ever. What do you make of that? As, as you know, we didn't participate in that round, although we were Series A investors in WeWork. Um, we did not participate in this this recent $350 million round. And I, look, I, I can't defend another firm's investment. That's that doesn't uh, there's no there's no value in doing that. And I'm not inside their heads. I would say this about Adam. We can debate a lot of things, but he is definitely top point zero zero one percent in terms of his ability to separate people from their money. And I'll leave it at that. Hang on, you can't leave it at that. What do you mean by that? He's, he is very, very good at raising money, as he's shown time and time again. And, so, um, and he's done that again here. Would you write him another check? We didn't. <laughs> uh, all right. So what do you think that says about Silicon Valley? Is it a broader indictment of Silicon Valley, or does it showcase a problem of Silicon Valley, or is this a very specific issue with potentially Andreessen Horowitz? I think it's a, I, I think these mega rounds, I, I, I don't know, I can't pretend to know what, uh, what goes into a mega round or a growth, in a growth round like this. I don't know what the calculus is. That isn't the type of investment that we make. You know, the vast majority of what we do is, you know, five, 10, $15 million investments in really small companies in their earliest stages where we're making a 10-year commitment to work with them. And and so I think that's the that's the business I know. I, I think there's a lot of, uh, there's been a lot of changes in uh, growth investing with SoftBank and uh, lots of firms raising larger and larger funds, but that isn't what we've done, so I, I can't speak to it. All right. Eric Vishria, partner, Benchmark. Uh, appreciate you stopping by, Eric. Thank you. Thanks for having me. The biggest producer of the nickel used in electric car batteries wants to be seen as more than just a source of resources. Indonesia's president spoke to Bloomberg's editor-in-chief, John Micklethwaite. Yeah, yang kita inginkan semua adalah mobil listriknya. What we want is the electric cars, not the battery. For Tesla, we want to build electric cars in Indonesia, from Ford electric cars, Hyundai electric cars, from Japan, Toyota, Suzuki. And we want a huge ecosystem of electric cars. Indonesia has held talks on potential partnerships with Tesla over several years, but there have been no agreements. to the story that's had everyone talking this week in Silicon Valley, Andreessen Horowitz writing its biggest check ever to controversial WeWork founder Adam Newman. The check? $350 million, instantly making Flo, Newman's new real estate startup, a unicorn. Yes, the same Newman whose WeWork hit a peak valuation of $50 billion, then plummeted to $8 billion with lots of people losing their jobs and some investors losing lots of money. 
There have been quite a few tweets about this on both sides of the debate, including this from Winnie founder Sarah Muscoff. People always ask me why I defend quote-unquote toxic female founders and associate my brand with female leaders who might have done bad things. It's because women leaders aren't held to standards. Women leaders are held to standards men are not. Men get $350 million. Women get ostracized. If I don't speak up, who will? Sarah Muscoff, joining me now, CEO and co-founder of Winnie. We'll get to that. But tell me, like, why did you want to speak up about this? Yeah, I thought you were going to mention my viral <laughs> joke tweet making fun of uh, Adam. That Mimis. was good, too. It was a little more inside baseball, but you could explain. It's, it's <laughs> all good. My comedy career is my next act. But, uh, you know... I, I don't think anyone was really surprised that Adam Newman was able to raise a mega round of funding. I yeah. think what really struck a chord with a lot of founders, especially women founders, is that he was given this second chance when so many women and underrepresented minorities aren't even given a first chance. Um, and, you know, what other big, bold ideas and founders could we uncover if we invested in people besides white men? You know, I spoken to a lot of people this week and a lot of people who didn't want to speak publicly about this, you know, don't want to say anything negative about Andreessen Horowitz. Why do you, why do you think people won't talk about it? I mean, I don't think this is unique to Andreessen Horowitz. I think in venture capital as a whole, there's been a really big emphasis on, you know, sort of growth at all costs and, uh, you know, burning lots of cash on your way to the top. And I, I actually am pretty optimistic because I think that is really changing. And I think that will serve women founders really well. Women get just 2% of the venture capital. And so we have always had to operate, you know, in a profitable way or on the path to profitability. Um, and now that is finally getting some respect. It's not just growth and burning lots of cash. It's actually growth that's sustainable. And that's what we've always done at Winnie. And I think a lot of women founders have always done. I think part of the risk is, you know, if you come forward, would you ever get a check from Andreessen Horowitz, which is, you know, one of the most prestigious venture capital firms in Silicon Valley. Why take that risk? Uh, that you I mean, might never get funding from them. I think, you know, either way, like, this is not anything having to do with just Andreessen Horowitz. I think a lot of firms across the board, I mean, this is an industry-wide uh, number that 2% of the venture capital goes to women founders, and even less if you look at, you know, underrepresented women founders. Um, so I don't think this is unique to them. I think this is just a great example and time to say, like, hey, what about all the women who weren't given second chances after they made a big bet that didn't work out? Um, and or the many that never got a first chance. And many that didn't even get a first chance. And I think now is actually a really good time to talk about it because there is this greater emphasis, aside from this case, uh, a much greater emphasis on profitability and you know, sustainable growth. You and I talked when you were launching Winnie. What has your experience been like raising money, not just as a female founder, but a founder raising money for a marketplace for childcare? It's been rough. Uh, I think childcare has historically been really underfunded um, and undervalued and overlooked and all the things. It's a $90 billion market childcare for kids under six in the US alone annually. So it's, it's massive. Um, but the money just really hasn't been there. Um, and I think, you know, 
when you're building in an industry that's so big and so entrenched and you're trying to innovate, it takes a long time. And so a, a lot of what was invested in the past were these like really quick wins and like you want to grow really fast at all costs. And that's not the way you innovate in childcare. It's just not going to work. It's so entrenched. Uh, it's so big. Um, it's so fragmented. And so we've, you know, taken a slower growth approach. We've been at this for almost seven years. Um, we were really fortunate to find investors who believed in kind of the long haul. Um, and now, you know, we are the leading marketplace for group childcare and early education. But it's taken almost seven years to get there. It did not happen overnight. And we had to be really careful with how we grew so that we would have the time and the runway to, to get to where we are now. What's the funding environment like now? You know, we're in the middle of this big market correction, you're hearing about down rounds and flat rounds and layoffs. Yeah. Is it harder uh, than it's been? If I could give advice to other companies, <laughs> it would be, you know, if you can get to profitability, get there. Yeah. I, I think we feel like we have so much more predictability in our own revenue and growth than in what investors are going to like or be able to invest in or, you know, can they raise from their LPs um, that we're focusing internally on just our business and we're really fortunate to be in a position to do that. We've never been able to count on the next round of funding. Um, I think there have been companies, especially in the childcare space, that have raised more and grown faster and they're finding themselves in a tough spot right now because that next round of funding is it's not just out there easy to get what's the state of the child care industry right now post covid post pandemic um what are you seeing one of the biggest issues right now in childcare is the teacher shortage uh so the early educator shortage so we hear about that all the time with you know public education, but it's even worse in childcare. Uh, and it's really, really affecting these businesses. They're having to close classrooms, take less children into their program. It's creating this huge supply issue. Um, so that's kind of one of the things we're now really focused on at Winnie is helping daycares and preschools hire staff in addition to filling their open spaces. Because if they don't have the teachers, they can't fill spaces. They can't meet ratios. So. You know, what are the, 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 the problems that we're, we're not talking about, and how do you see those problems being resolved? Problems in childcare? Child I mean, I think one big problem is the lack of investment. It does take investment to innovate. We see this in pretty much every other in industry, so it's hard when you have to grow just based on your profits. Mm -hmm. um, it's slower and it takes more time. Uh, so I would, I would absolutely love to see more investment, not just from venture capitalists, though that would be nice, but also from employers, from the government. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, Build Back Better was supposed to be this great big influx of cash to childcare. None of that is happening. And so you know, there is really a lack of, of investment um, going towards childcare. And I think it can come from many different sources. But someone's got to step up here. Um, I, I also want to ask you about Twitter. You've worked at a lot of different tech companies um, before you started your own. You worked at Twitter. What do you think about Elon Musk potentially owning Twitter? Would so, Elon be good for Twitter? 
He recently, he actually just recently tweeted something like, you know, being a mom, which he's a dad, so it's a little weird he's tweeting about moms, but being a mom is just as important as any career. Uh, and to me, that's just kind of like an underhanded way of saying, you know, moms, you go stay at home and take care of kids, leave us men to the careers. Uh, I don't think that's a fit for Twitter's culture. It's, it's, you know, I haven't worked there in a while, but I, I am sure they would not agree with that kind of statement or approach towards, they hire lots of women, they have lots of moms working in, in leadership roles. Um, they have been big supporters and advocates of getting more women in leadership. So that just, to me, seems really uh, not aligned with their culture at all. What about the product itself? I mean, I'm sure even you would agree that, like, Potentially, there could have been more innovation at Twitter over the last decade. They could be making more money. They could have grown a lot faster. Maybe they need an Elon Musk maybe they to need shake more, things up. Maybe they need more women, more moms working there. Um, I think also, you know, this has just been a massive distraction for the employees. Mm -hmm. So when you talk about innovation, I mean, how can you possibly focus on 100% on innovating and making the product better for users if you have this massive distraction going on at the same time. So I don't think this has been good on that front either. All right. Uh, well, we'll continue to follow the drama there on all fronts, really. And thank you for helping. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop. Customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Time now for our daily crypto report. The big tokens, of course, going through a sell-off. Bitcoin dropping as much as 9% to its lowest level since late July. According to CoinGlass, some $220 million in crypto assets were liquidated in just one hour today. Let's bring in David Tao now, president of crypto asset fund ProChain Capital. Uh, David, how long does this downturn last for crypto? Uh, I think it lasts through Labor Day at least. I think we're going to have some dog days of summer, uh, not much going on. I think macro, uh, we've had a good run-up in equity markets. We've had a good run-up generally in crypto. 
uh, certainly very strong in Ether. And I think uh, right now the market is deciding between should we be uh, in a risk-on environment or do we need to pay more attention to inflation rates, Fed policy, and so forth. But how long does it extend beyond Labor Day? I don't think very long. I think actually we will start to get some announcements after Labor Day around things that the crypto community cares about, uh, legislation, regulation, and then potentially additional industry-related announcements like the one we received or the few that we received out of BlackRock uh, over the past couple of weeks in terms of their foray into crypto. Do you differentiate between Bitcoin and Ether, you know, when you consider these big, uh, you know, potential market influencers, given the merge coming up? Right now, you have to. Uh, I think that the narrative around the merge for Ether is overpowering for it. Uh, certainly today, it didn't matter. Uh, but I think overall, that narrative is very strong. And I think as we get closer and closer to the merge, that narrative will become stronger and stronger and really lead uh, the charge in terms of Ether's price movement. Now, that being said, I don't know if the merge is necessarily you know, bullish up until the very end or um, it'll be bullish for some time close to you know, the actual merge date. Uh, but then there will be a point of time where people will, you know, quote unquote, um, you know, start to sell the news. Now, your fund, Protein, Prochain, down 53% year-to-date, but you actually jumped back up 19% in July. How did you buck the trend? Uh, well, we were, you know, we, we had a fair amount of risk-off attitude, you know, coming through May and June. We took a bunch of, obviously, losses, but we also took a bunch of cash uh, off of the table uh, and held it in reserve to go ahead and redeploy because we did think that things were going to go materially lower, lower. And so we went ahead and redeployed that capital uh, during that period of time. In addition, I have to point out, we're not only invested in tokens, but we also invest in equities that are focused on the crypto and digital payment sector. And so there we've done fairly well as well. So it's been able to balance out our portfolio. How would you gauge broader institutional sentiment in crypto right now? Obviously, you've got, you know, the bankruptcies, you've got Celsius. How long does all this stuff hang over? So I think the institutions, um, th this is my, my firm opinion, I think the institutions have been going through an educational process for an extended period of time now, you know, the last at least two years, if not longer. Uh, they have the resources and the human resources in particular to go ahead and devote towards that education and becoming sophisticated. In terms of when they go ahead and decide to get involved, uh, that usually happens you know, over a period of time, but when they go ahead and throw down the hammer, uh, it's actually, you know, in very serious numbers. And I think they've, you know, I, th I, I if I had to guess, I think uh, a number of them have gone ahead and added or started to add, started positions during this downturn. I, I think they are watching, though, particularly what's going on with the bankruptcies. And you, you raised that point. I think it's important right now in terms of the sector generally. I think the sector is learning a lot through the liquidations and bankruptcies of Three Arrows, Celsius, Voyager, and so forth. It's, it's a learning process in terms of being able to understand what the priorities are, legal priorities, excuse me, in terms of legal rights 
of account holders, depositors, and then what exactly those assets, when held, whether they be directly in accounts, whether they be directly in crypto, whether they be rights to accounts in other institutions in crypto, what exactly that shakes out to. I think institutions are very keen on learning the results of this in tandem with, at the same time, understanding the regulatory framework, right? The SEC seems to be going off without any guardrails. And I think the legislature is trying to rein them in. I don't think we'll see that reining in until the midterm elections. But I think between the legal precedent being set in those cases, coupled with the uncertainty around the legal and regulatory environment, is leaving institutions in kind of a middling position at this point, and they're not going to go in full force. But yet, they're still educating very rapidly. And I think at the right time, they will go ahead and deploy very heavily. And there's no way of knowing when that right time will be. So I think you need to be there ready and waiting for it. All right. Uh, thank you for your analysis there. David Tao, Approaching Capital President. Lots to watch. Appreciate you stopping by. It's branded as the new fire festival fiasco. Pollen, a high-flying travel startup that planned vacations in posh locations with celebrities, has had to cancel dozens of its luxury events over the last year, prompting a wave of customer complaints. Now the company is going through a restructuring. Pollen has been blaming the Omicron variant for its misfortune, but turns out employees say executives bear some of the blame too. Let's dive into this with Bloomberg's Katie Roof, who's been all over these latest developments. Katie, what's happening here? Sure, so good to be with you. In my, my uh, 10 years in covering startups, I have to say this is one of the most unusual situations I have heard um, in terms of money mismanagement. This is a company that was valued at 800 million just a few months ago, and um, now unclear if they're gonna be worth anything because they've had trouble finding any buyer at all. So it is being called Firefest because it is a music-related business, they actually book festivals and in several of them and one in particular uh, earlier this year they booked a, an event in Mexico for people to see the band departure and after people arrived I was told even as soon as an hour before the concert was supposed to begin it was just canceled so people were there and there was no event and then people didn't even get refunded so certainly people were pretty upset about that um, there have been a lot of customer complaints and um, according to um, my sources that I've spoken to, while the company blames COVID for a lot of its misfortune, um, in this particular instance, they actually hadn't secured the proper permit to have the concert to begin with. So um, a lot of allegations of mismanagement um, all across the board, whether it be for poor planning or just um, not spending money properly. What have we learned from employees specifically about what happened here and like, the part of the story that wasn't being told? Sure. So we've heard a lot of different things. I think um, one thing that we've heard that resonated was that while it seemed like they didn't have money to pay their bills and they weren't paying their bills, meanwhile, they were spending um, money on expensive parties for themselves, expensive uh, villas. Uh, you know, we, we got a hold of some documents that said they spent over 50,000 pounds on some villa, which, you know, the company says was, uh, was actually for a legitimate business purpose 
this, but somehow it seemed like they were finding money for fun, but they were stiffing customers, they weren't paying their employees, things like pensions and now severance and other compensation. Uh, they weren't paying vendors. There's a long list of people they own money and they literally kept a list. They kept an Excel spreadsheet and there was something on there said, what will happen if, if you don't, if we don't pay these people? They were trying to figure out how to prioritize who they paid. We put in our story that sometimes it was just because someone got more attention on social media for their complaints. So um, that, that got them ahead of the line in getting a refund. Um, so, you know, certainly a lot of allegations of mismanaged funds. We spoke to 16 people directly involved with this, and I think there's going to be more stories to come. We have a lot of uh, pretty damning allegations that we're looking into and, um, you know, curious to, to vet that some more. So, yeah, last quick question. I mean, is this company going to make it or are they going to go out of business? <laughs> Well, they struggled to find a buyer, so uh, they they hired Goldman Sachs and they were unable to find a buyer, and um, you know it was it was unsuccessful. So, um, you know, will someone want to buy? Pollen with all of these problems, I don't know. I mean, they did have connections. They did, you know, book Justin Bieber and other high-profile events. So right. um, maybe you could say there's something to their brand, but I don't know. It looks like they're they're having some problems. All right. Well, we'll be watching for more of your reporting on this uh, fascinating one, Bloomberg's Katie Roof. Thank you. And that does it for this edition of Bloomberg Technology. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th. A thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at CarterEconomicForum.com.